Hey everybody, how's it going? That's right, I'm recording something at the beginning of the show, which means that something in the show is wiggy later on. Basically, when we recorded the show, we had been recording for three hours, and we recorded our intro and our closing after we recorded the interview with the guest. So what happens is, our guest is coming to us from Switzerland, and I keep referring to, for lack of a better word, the guest's home country as Sweden when it's actually Switzerland, and Lobo even corrects me, for some stupid reason I developed this mental block and I could not stop saying Sweden instead of Switzerland. So if it bothers you and you're anal retentive about it, I don't blame you. <laughs> I was just really tired and just chalk it up to me being stupid. I recommend you just turn it into a drinking game and you take a drink whenever I say Sweden. Anyways, on with the show. Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? Whew. Oh, I'd say the odds of that are terribly slim, Brain. True. I mean, really, when have I ever been pondering what you've been pondering? To my knowledge, never. Exactly. So, what are the chances that this time I'm pondering what you're pondering? Next to nil. Well, that's exactly what I'm thinking, too. Therefore, you are pondering what I'm pondering. Put. I guess I am. We are the wretched refuse. We're underdogs. We're mutts. We're mutants. There's something wrong with us. Something very, very wrong with us. Something seriously wrong with us. Hey folks, what's up? Welcome back. It's been a while since we've done an episode. Uh, primarily, that's my fault. Work schedules, uh, crazy weather, some illness in the family we had to get taken care of. Everything's fine. Nobody panic. Nobody send me panicked emails. Um, <laughs> Nobody died! Bunch of stuff we have to go over at the end of the episode, but I want to jump right into this episode as fast as we can because this is a long show. Uh, I will be breaking it up into two separate parts because this is about three hours long. And I don't want to drop a three-hour-long episode. I want to give people a little bit of time in between. Three-hour tour. Pretty much is what it was. We have with us, and I, I'm probably going to butcher his name again, uh, Saab Bashara, or is it Bashara Saab? Bashir Saab. <laughs> I know, we call him Bash. I'm teasing because... <laughs> well, no, I, He's I, a cool cat. He's a very cool cat. This episode... How this all came about is we interviewed Melissa Eid, who is a Mars One Round Two candidate. We've had her on the show before. You can go back and listen to the episode. And Besh contacted me through Twitter and said, hey, I like your guys' show, uh, et cetera, so on. And then we developed a rapport with him. And we this is the guy that we've been threatening to have on the show for a while now. Threatening. <laughs> yeah. The problem is, is Besh lives over in Sweden. And he is a scientist. Switzerland. Uh, land of hot chicks and machine guns and exactly. really cool knives and chocolate <laughs> and freedom. So basically, he is a scientist. He is a neuroscientist, and he is also a Mars One Round Two candidate. So there was a wide variety of topics that we could have him on the show. Well, at this point, you guys know us. If we can get somebody in the sciences on the show, we pretty much turn into blathering idiot geeks. Uh huh. Uh, Besh did agree to come on. It took us a little while, but we finally set up a time and he comes on the show tonight and where he was at while we were recording this, it was three 30 in the morning. I don't know if he stayed up all night or he woke up early no, to come on up, the show. He woke up to come on the show, which is still really, nuts. really cool. Yeah. It's <laughs> nuts. Um, and we say in the episode, we're not really sure why this guy likes our show and enjoys listening to us, but he does. And he was very cool and very willing to come on the show. This show was not at all what we expected it to be. No. 
primarily because we didn't know if Besh spoke English or not. Or I'm like, well, he's in Sweden, so he could be Sweden. We didn't know entirely what his field of research was. And he gives us a little bit of flack about that. We knew he was a neuroscientist and we knew he was a Mars one round two candidate. Um, Very, very nice guy. Very cool. Um, This is yet another one of these people that we could go to the bar and have a beer with and hang out with all night. Well, I could have the beer. You can't. Yeah, but but he's in Switzerland, so I'm sure I could get some good chocolate. (laughs) Yes. And cheese. Basically, what he does is he's working on technology to be able to hack the brain uh, for the most part. This show goes into a lot of different directions. Mm -hmm. We talk about hacking the brain, neuroscience. um, We talk about Mars One. And we talk about towards the end of the episode, I think the last hour of the episode, is in regards to near-death experiences, Lobos specifically, and how neuro death near-death experiences apply to uh neurology what is going on in a person's brain when they die if a person is not necessarily in a scientific sense crossing over and going to heaven or wherever they are in the afterlife well what from a scientific standpoint is actually happening in the brain at that point this is going to be hacked up into a couple of different episodes if i haven't said that yet because it is so long and i want to be able to give people a chance to listen to it and digest what they're hearing rather than say, here is one gigantic clump of food, go eat it, and you know, don't lose your flavor for it. Uh, the first episode will probably be two hours long. The second one will probably be an hour long, or however I manage to edit this together. Um, and that's pretty much it. This is probably one of the coolest shows that we've ever done, I think. Mm. Uh, it's fiercely interesting and we try very much to keep it down to a point where people can understand what we're talking about. And Besh is very good at doing that. He's, he was very good at doing that throughout this whole episode. I don't think it ever became so technically scientific gobbledygook that it was never interesting no. at any point. No, that's something I, he shares with, uh, Tyler. Yeah. Being able to break it down for the and, layman. Um, I mean, me and you just pretty much geek out like oh, yeah. cards. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not <laughs> as soon as he explained it. what he was doing, my brain just exploded with like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is what you're doing. You you're you're doing this kind of science. And I thought that it was, was really, really cool. What's funny is he's kind of the only guy that's doing this stuff for from what it sounds like. But anyways, uh, we're going to jump into the interview uh, when the first half comes to an end. You know, then we'll just start up the next one where the next show picks up and what have you. So Lobo and myself will both see you at the end of this little odyssey, and we'll talk to you guys then. Bye-bye. As we've probably announced in the intro by this point, tonight we have Bashira Saab with us. And Bashira is a neuroscientist and a Mars One Round Two candidate. And he agreed to come on the show. And being as how when people say, yes, I am scientifically oriented and I'll be on your show, we pretty much hound the hell out of until they eventually come (laughs) on. So welcome to Project Archivist, Bash. I can't even say the name of our show right now. It's a pleasure to be here, Ojin. Um, you are coming to us from, you said Zurich, Switzerland. Is that where you said you're at? Or you're in Switzerland, right? Yep. That's, uh, you're, it's like three 30 in the morning or something like that right now where you're at, right? Yeah. But it's Saturday night. So it's, it's normal time to be awake. Yeah. You're in the land of hot chicks with machine guns. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, so you're a route a Mars One Round Two candidate. Um, mm-hmm. You find out for sure when you're going. When? In a couple of weeks or something like that? Do they announce the finalist? Is that how? Is that date coming up? Yeah, it's in like a week or something. He's all nonchalant. About it. Yeah, I know. You know, <laughs> I may be going to Mars at some point. It's in a week. You know, <laughs> I'm in Switzerland. I'm having you know. pizza next Friday. You know. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about yourself to give us a dime store tour of what you are and what you do. Um, well, I'm a principal investigator of uh, neuroscience at the University of Zurich Hospital for Psychiatry. Um, I just opened a small laboratory. I have a three-year contract and some money from the Swiss government to hire some students and I have some lab space. And uh, the real focus of my group is looking at neural circuits that are important for the drive to explore, or to, to put it very simply, uh, that are important for curiosity. I'm really interested in what molecules, and particularly circuits in the brain, what brain areas, and what connections in the brain are important for giving rise to this motivation to go out into an environment and, and see what's around, just for the just for the sake of it, for the potential benefits that, that may be down the road, as opposed to for the immediate benefits of finding an escape, or finding food, or finding a mate, and that kind of stuff. So you're uh, literally exploring curiosity then. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's almost like a form of, of, of uh, academic masturbation, you could say. Because <laughs> you're really just studying sort of how you study in, in many ways. That's so great. Yeah. But um, it's something that I came upon entirely by accident. When I was doing my PhD in Toronto at Mount Sinai Hospital with uh, the University of Toronto, I um, I really accidentally created a mouse like we we were doing a lot of different genetics and creating different mutant mice and i was trying to f- mess around with with how mice form memories and i wound up creating a mouse which was considerably um better at forming certain types of memories than than like a wild type than like a control mouse but i also noticed that this mouse explored its environment in a very different way um and and essentially was was demonstrating heightened curiosity uh, one can say if you want to extend that to a rodent. And um, hmm. and that hadn't really been done at, at, at a rigorous level in terms of molecular neuroscience. And so this was something which was which was kind of new, and I found it really interesting. And because it was an accident, the data were you know, really quite interesting to me, and I felt like they, they must be robust because it's something just, pop, just popped out. And I've, I really got fixated on this idea, and I think that... I think it's really important. I think the, the drive to explore is actually fundamental to, to having a successful uh, culture, a successful species, a successful planet or whatever. Um, and so I think it's something important to study at the, the molecular level and, um, and also at the level of neural circuits, uh, which is really the focus of what I do now. Jesus, you created Pinky in the Brain. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I mean, I'm not trying to be weird about it, but that's kind of what you did. So you created a mouse that was hyper stimulated to explore its environment. Mm-hmm. Was it a fearless yeah. type? Was that's shown through some? No, of the... it wasn't no? fearless. Yeah, it, no, but that, so it was that's a human. A, Lobo, that's a really uh, that's a really insightful question, though, because one of the first things we noticed is that they had this increase in in in, in their exploratory behavior exclusively in environments that were non-fearful. Really? Uh, yeah, you put them into a fearful environment and you, you would suppress this. And so that really made me think that, okay, this is actually something specific to uh, a certain motivation to explore as opposed to a general motivation to like just move around uh, your environment. Wow. So um, you guys, you guys yeah. evolved a mouse into 
and intelligent introvert? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going a little far, but <laughs> as far as mice go, <laughs> that's that's freaking great. Actually, that this is actually really fascinating for me because wow. does the nature to want to explore tie directly in with our fear sense? Are these two related, or? Well, well, imagine that um, imagine that you're curious about something about an individual, um, but but you don't ask. I mean, you don't ask essentially because you're afraid of being embarrassed, or you're afraid they're going to punch you, or something. You see somebody yeah. in the subway, and you're, you're wondering why they have that that funny thing on their lip or whatever. And uh, you know, so I mean, it's it's very clear that fear suppresses curiosity, like the you know the, the how we would um, respond to our natural curiosity. It's definitely suppressed by fear. There's always a counterbalance between between everything that's going on um and that that i mean that's understood quite well so yeah i'm I'm really looking at the trying to look at the curiosity side but i have to put the the animals in different environments to understand whether or not there's a specific effect on on you know like novelty driven exploration as opposed to fear driven exploration are you seeing a correlation between any of these or is i mean you're, you're primarily primarily just seeing curiosity exploration then for the most part is that well, it well, well, sort of because that's that's where I that's where I point the flashlight. That's really what I'm what I'm focusing on. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so one thing that's that's quite clear is that when animals, uh, regardless of whether or not they're mutant or control animals and so forth, when they show more curiosity or when they demonstrate more exploratory behavior, they demonstrate more efficient learning as well. Um, it's extremely hard to separate the two, even at the level of neuroplasticity. So. It, it turns out that at least in the experiments that I've been doing, that the ability for neurocommunication to change dynamically um, from the cortex into the hippocampus, hippocampus is an extremely important area for memory formation, particularly for memories that require um, binding sensory information from multiple different modalities. Um, the, the ability for the neurons to change how, how they communicate from the cortex into the hippocampus is, is strongly correlated with not just learning, but also the drive to explore. It's extremely different, difficult to separate these things. Um, and we may have found a mouse that has a particular mutation in a protein where we, we can decouple uh, exploration and, and, and the efficiency of learning. But, um, but we still have a couple more experiments to confirm that. Wow. They're definitely very intimately related. I mean, that's, 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 that's clear. Have you been able to redo this more than once, or were you only able to do it with the one mouse? Uh, well, we have we've done it in two directions essentially with the same protein pathway, where we've increased the the protein, and then mice become more curious and they have better memories, and the reverse, where we've um, uh, mutated the protein to the point where it's it's destabilized, so the the mice still make the protein and the protein still functions, but it because of the particular mutation it has, it degrades more quickly. Um, these mice show less curiosity and they they uh, they don't learn as well. Um, in, in, in terms of their ability to form spatial memories. Now, is this so, a long-term effect, or is this, is this limited? Does it fade, or does, is it continual growth? Uh, it's, it's basically for as long as we're affecting the, the protein pathway, then we, we keep observing the behavioral effects. So this is flowers for Algernon. <laughs> I, I don't know that reference, but maybe. It's a, it's a, it, was a, it was a book I had read when I was a child that, there were there was a human analog and there was a mouse and the mouse was given in te- in intelligence but as the mouse aged and it degraded its intelligence evaporated the oh, human man, yeah. the human analog saw the same thing although it happened quicker in the mouse 
the person realized at some point he was going to return to an idiot. Yeah, I read that book. That was a really interesting Ooh, read. I loved it. So, yeah. wow. So it's it's continuous. As long as you're stimulating this, it's continual. Yeah, so far we've, we've been able to see. But there were, there were some... There were some downsides, actually, like like um, like the the neurons because they and this is the theory anyway. I don't know this for certain, but because the theory is that because the neurons um, had facilitated plasticity and they could they could really you know change the way they communicate in such a such a quick manner that it, it seemed that they would form a very detailed map of their environments extremely quickly, and then if you modified that environment immediately oh, afterwards no. they couldn't update it very well oh no <laughs> so yeah this is stuff we haven't actually uh published yet i mean i've sp spoken about it publicly but i haven't actually written a scientific paper on it so wow. there does seem to be some type of downside and that shouldn't really be surprising i think uh i think our brains you know have, have evolved quite well over the past few billions of years and um it's pretty difficult to just come up with a single change that will that will not have some sort of side effect True, true. Um, but certainly, we, you know, you can you can tweak certain areas and you can see pretty interesting results. Um, wow, that's fascinating. So you're tweaking this stuff in real time too, then? Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah, that's great. I mean, that, no, this no, is this is insane. <laughs> it's it's really incredible that what you can do now in terms of genetics and stuff. Like the experiments I'm doing now are just like like to me they're just mind-boggling, and I'm doing them. You know, so I can't imagine what they sound like to people. Like we can we can stimulate specific neural circuits in the brains of animals while we're performing fMRI and get a full whole brain readout of like the oh functional connectivity of the circuit, and then see how this changes as a result of, of of giving the animals stress or exposure to a novel environment or like like Prozac for a couple of weeks, and and it's like this this is just crazy amounts of information that you can get, and it's like it's like how do you even do this stuff? And it's, I don't know. You're the one doing it. That's the yeah. crazy thing. <laughs> yeah. It's it's amazing. And it, I mean, and... you almost sound like a mad scientist, but you're not. I, I get where you're coming from. Wow. The vision I get is like you've got a little mouse strapped down to a table with all these wires and dioids and stuff like that coming out of its brain. Is that actually how you're doing this, or are you doing this chemically? Or um, it's a combination. Uh, the technique that um that I'm putting to use right now. Uh, goes by the name of optogenetics, and it's really taken neuroscience uh, like in, in, as a huge wave. It's an explore, it's like an explosion in the people that are using this technique because it's so because it's so robust and because it's so useful. And uh, essentially, what you do uh, is you you in order to get this stuff really specific, you take an animal uh, that's a mutant animal, and it specifically has a protein in a certain family of neurons. So you know your brain has like many different types of neurons. And mm -hmm. you, can, you can control where this protein is expressed um, and you can restrict it to like a certain family of neurons. Uh, and then what you do is you inject a virus into, the, into, into these animals, into a certain area of the brain, and the virus is packaged with some DNA that then uh, interacts with this protein that's only in a certain family of cells. So the virus infects all the cells in the brain, the glia, you know, like 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 the non-neuronal tissue, all this mm -hmm. different stuff, uh, many different types of neurons. But because the protein that interacts with the DNA inside the virus is only in a certain family of cells, then you get this 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 connection there, which then produces a channel that inserts itself into the membrane of just these this one family of neurons, and this channel you can then control by light. 
um, which means you can drop a fiber optic into the brain and point it at these neurons. Oh my God. And then you can, depending on which channel you're using, you can turn the neurons on at will with millisecond time resolution, or you can silence them. You can just shut them down. So you can shut down circuits. You can turn on circuits. You can do this while the animal's moving around in an environment. You can do it when you're doing fMRI. So it's, you're saying you can shut down specific parts of the brain at, at yeah. random, at will, if you yeah. uh, at will, in real time, why this is actually going on with, with a fiber optic cable then. Mm-hmm. That's so awesome. To be able to actually map what is happening at the time that it's happening. Exactly, yeah. To, to really get a, uh, a, like a causative link between neural circuits and behavior, for example. And you can do this, you can, so you can shut off, I mean, they've done all kinds of stuff. They, they stimulate the animals, uh, like areas of their hypothalamus that are important for sexual drive. And they uh-huh. stimulate, and the animals start, they start having sex. I mean, it's like, it's really. Oh my gosh. That is really like so Frankenstein. Great. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Frankenstein was a novice <laughs> compared to this. Holy cow. So I'm trying to translate how, how this would all, what this could do if it were translated into human application. Because right now you're saying that you've modified a mouse to be able to interpret its environment and be able to make better decisions based on what it's going through. So essentially you're saying you can make a mouse learn a maze faster and make it more curious about where it's got to go. Mm-hmm. So it's not just going around looking for a food pellet. It's actually exploring its environment. But at the same time, that ties directly into memory, correct? Am I following you here? Absolutely. So therefore, you can control – I'm trying to draw a correlation. You can control how memory works then, correct, essentially? Yeah. Or it ties correct. into that? Yeah. They, I mean there, there are some scientists from MIT that, that even created a false memory. Yeah, I was reading that in the MIT yeah. page. Yeah, and it's, it's and, and in some ways, you know, often the media report things, and it's like this that that's nothing at all what happened. But in this case, I mean, they 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 really created a memory, and uh, <laughs> it was about a a three way, correct? <laughs> what? No, I'm serious. I'm serious. It was a false memory that was implanted into the mouse that was being one of the subjects that was being used was two mates. Uh, the only one that I know of. Um, was came out of the lab of Sasuni Tonegawa. Okay. Uh, and what he did was essentially he tagged neurons that um, were activated in a particular environment, and he tagged a, se- a separate set of neurons that were activated when the animals got a fear response, and then he activated them together separately, like m- much later on, and that formed an association between the environment and the fear response. So when he put the animals into th- that environment, they became afraid of it. So essentially, he he, he created like he made, he made the animals scared of an environment. He made them remember it as if you know a, a, a bad experience had occurred there. Um, that's funny and that, because that, that's the fake memory. Yeah. When I was I was listening to NPR and they were talking about it, so they must have just been joking. Yeah, it was on. A... <laughs> well, that, that that's the yeah. thing. I mean, that's like the first thing you joke is like, well, you, I could I could then you know, convinced Gina Davis that she, she, she agreed to go to the prom with me, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> that's wow. Really... Okay. okay. Oh my God. That's so, there's awesome. so many, we were going to talk to you about Mars one, but this is so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so much better. Yeah. <laughs> Cause this is happening right now. I know Mars um, is far away. This is here. Yeah. <laughs> 
because you're essentially talking about going into the mechanics of the brain and actually, you know, screwing with the hard drive for the most part then. So where, where do you see this going next? How soon do you jump out of rats and into something else? Ultimately, I'm going to say, when do we start doing this on humans? But I know that's probably really far away at this point. I don't so, think it's, it's probably not that far away. Um, some of these, these channels uh, respond to red light. Red light can um, penetrate through tissue quite far, which means that you could, you, can implant, you could implant or you could even just like put a cap on somebody that has like a nice red light on it, you know, an LED. And you could stimulate through much of the skin and the skull and you could actually turn on you know, families of neurons in the cortex if you're able to design a virus that doesn't have to combine with the, like a protein in a mutant human. You just you just have a virus that will express in certain in, in a certain area, and you can restrict how far the virus can diffuse as well. So you can you can get specificity in that way. Obviously, a human brain is much bigger than a mouse brain. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, so, so so you can different use slightly different techniques. Well, are the neural pathways that much different from that of a mouse? <clears throat> so there are some differences, but the mammalian brain is like at the circuit level is pretty well conserved all the way from mice up to humans. Uh, and one of the one of the things that they'd like to do is they'd like to you know to be able to treat epilepsy for example like, just like severe that. epilepsy yeah, yeah. Just or that. or Parkinson's I mean in Parkinson's they already will will use electrical stimulation yeah I've seen that too where uh, people they they click a switch and their Parkinson's just shuts right off yeah and uh, even even for depression and, what about dementia uh, you know things like that memory related diseases yeah that's that I mean that's always a really really tough one and even you know parkinson's and huntington's a lot of these you know korea diseases are, are also really tough ones because once neurons start dying on you it's pretty tough to to get them back mm-hmm. and even if you do get them back to have them reintegrate into the circuit in a in a meaningful way huge challenge yeah there's a uh, difference between short circuit and destruction well how about this exactly. okay well if you listen to our shows with tyler coke john by chance uh he's he's a scientist who's come on a few times yeah Is that- yeah, yeah, he's really good, yeah. Because um, I know he's going to hear this, and I know his brain is whirling right now as we're having this conversation. <laughs> it would have been – if I knew we were going to go this way, I would have had both of you guys on here together, and we'd have just sat back and oogled all over it. But um, <laughs> The internet would have melted. For us, it would have. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's say – now let's take this down speculative paths right now based on what you might know. None of what you're saying right now you can say with 100%, so I'm sure I'm going to put that out there. Usually when we have scientists and stuff on here, I'm supposed to go through a little thing where I ask you this whole series of questions based on what your interests and stuff are. I'm going to bypass all that, which I'm going to catch flack for. But anyways, um, so let's say somebody you somebody comes up and they say, there's dementia that's coming in on this person or Alzheimer's is coming in on this person, and you catch it early enough. Is there a way that you could apply this to prevent things from getting worse, to be able to like remap those neural pathways or prevent them from decaying with the proteins? Or is this so, something totally different? Well, my, my guess is that yes, but, my, but I wouldn't exactly know how. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, anytime you have a, a novel technique that allows you to, um, to control things, to control certain neurons in the brain, there's always a, an opportunity for, for medicine there. Exactly how this will be applied to, to, to delay dementia is a, um, is a different question. But certainly there's, there's always potential there. This is mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, even something, I mean, people, people know that like just having positive feelings is, is actually really, really good for your brain. Exercise is, is one of the best things for your brain, just period. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are specific reasons for that. 
and if you know we could we could then stimulate those circuits for example so you just essentially you'd get you know you, you you'd get the benefits of happiness and the benefits of 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 some of the elements of exercise just through the stimulation so you might be able to boost those benefits even further you know even just something as simple as that um you know could could be really beneficial to people because it's almost sounding like you can you know in, in a in a futuristic scientific kind of way, I can foresee a device you just have a plan in the back of your head and you can just dial in emotions at random. You know, uh, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to feel yeah. happy. All right. So you click it to the right. It sends the light signals through into your brain to turn those neurons off and turn the other ones, you know, whatever. What good and, is that though? <laughs> well, I, of course I go to the drug end of it. but <laughs> I mean, well, think about it though. I mean, like if you're, if you're somebody who suffers from depression and things like that, yes. you What's could, you could just, yeah, but you could turn, you'd essentially be able to turn that on and off for the most part. I mean, this is down the road. If it's, if you can map these neurons and control these kinds yeah, of, but things. some of the darkest days of my life have given me some of the brightest hope, but that's, I'm talking about somebody who's who suffers from continual depression and things like that. Think mm -hmm. about that. If you had an ability, if you were continuously depressed to be able to turn those kinds of things off, of course, I could also see the downside to it to be like a drug addictive kind of thing. But all of that leads back to this ability to be able for exploratory purposes, though, within the brain. Yeah. I mean, you, you are touching on something which is important for the work that I'm doing, that like that the money that I've been granted very gratefully from the Swiss government um, is to specifically look at these circuits in the context of mental illness and specifically in depression mm. because deficits in, in exploratory behavior are quite common to, to mental illness. Ha, I is smart. I knew where we were going here. I is smart. <laughs> SMRT. <laughs> uh, and so sort of my, 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 my hand-waving kind of vision is that if we can identify the circuits that are, that are changed in, in depression – and then we can give them a little push and stimulate them, that we can start a, a process where the animals will begin to explore their environment more, and that will create a positive feedback loop, which will help them um, you know, exit from their, their, their depressive characteristics. This is, this is hopeful, but it could, it could totally backfire, right? I mean, there could be a very, very important purpose for deficits in exploration associated with, with mental illness, like the brain is just not ready for it yet. And so if I force these animals by controlling their neural circuits to go explore, it could, you know, make things even worse. Could right? give you them can, psychosis? Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is why you do this stuff in animals first. Oh obviously. yeah, I understand that completely. <laughs> I understand um, that completely. But, but, but there's definitely, there's definitely potential there. Or what could also happen is that you could find one population of mice for whatever reason, they actually benefit from it really well and another population don't. And then the question is, well, can we figure out what determines whether or not they they uh, will respond beneficially or not. And if you can, then you can really start understanding, you know, like how to give particular patients specific treatments in order to uh, to serve them best. Um, yeah, you'd have so, to identify, I would imagine, you have to identify neurologically what's wrong with that patient and where before you'd be able to go in and alter that, though. Because exactly. you're talking about, you've, you've genetically created a mouse by accident specifically to do this. Whereas... Yeah, You'd have to go back in a human. You're not going to be able to genetically create a human being to specifically be able to do this. Well, it, yet, yeah, yeah, yet, yeah. I mean, in, in essence, we probably could do it, but there'd be a lot of hurdles to it. But the important thing is not that we use the exact same methods that we do in the mice mm -hmm. uh, and then transfer them to the humans. The important thing is that we achieve the same end. You don't necessarily need to use 
uh, in, you know, viruses and, and mutants and channels and, and, and optogenetics in order to stimulate these pathways. You could do it by training people on how to, to, to just think in different ways. I mean, we know that the way, the way that you think, you're actually controlling neurons around your brain. And so if we understand that in more detail, then just certain thought patterns can reinforce particular circuits. And so you can get this just by essentially thinking your way through it. Sounds sounds kind no, of no. What you're talking about really is hacking weird. the human brain. You're talking about hacking your own brain and your own nervous system, and exactly. that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, not not really crazy. It's not crazy. It's just amazing that we can do that. It's fascinating to be able yeah. to hack your own brain. It's like hacking your own operating system. And you yeah. you do you do it intuitively all the time. Um, and 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 where where I think there's real promise in neuroscience yeah. is finding out how people can do this. Uh, you know, scientifically as opposed to intuitively. So you can really get in there and say, okay, I know when I think like this, I change the expression of, you know, this dopamine receptor in this part of the brain. And so if I just keep thinking along those angles, then I can have a, you know, a long-term effect on that circuit and then that will create a positive feedback loop and then I can build my way out of, out of this depressive episode. This is, this, this is like, this is entirely, you know, imaginable within, within neuroscience. There's many, many steps that have to be taken between now and then. But um, but it's really exciting, and the cool thing is it doesn't require any drugs. It doesn't require you know any invasive techniques or anything. It really just requires a better understanding of of the brain itself in order to capitalize on it. That's great. How did Switzerland come along? How, I mean, how do you go about setting up to do this? How do you get a lab to do this? I mean, do hi Swiss, how are you? I would like a lab, and this is what I'm doing. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. Academia is, is like at least in the sciences, it's based on coming up with ideas, justifying uh, how they might work, being clear about the experiments you'll do to test the hypothesis you have, and then applying for money. And, and usually you get rejected. But once in a while, um, there's a funding body that thinks it's important and they, they want to contribute to it. And, um, and you, get, you get some cash and then you partner up with the university and away you go. I would have to think that pharmaceutical companies or something would be interested in this. Let's be real. I mean, the stuff you're talking about right now, the application-wise, we've been talking about simple stuff. This really could extend far, far beyond what we're just talking about right here in the broader scheme of things. Well, I mean, there's lots of people that have interest in this. I mean, think about the, the military, right? Yeah, that, I didn't um, want to go that way because that's always the way it goes. Military is always interested in this. Because yeah. <laughs> it could be, you could re essentially reverse hack it to go the other direction with this kind of stuff too. But it's it's pretty it's pretty scary to think. I mean, it's like, well, look what happens you know, in physics. They advance to the point where they can create nuclear weapons, and it's it's mm -hmm. uh, it's scary. It's beautiful, you know. Also, from the point that you think, well, you can use these the same principles that you use for the weapons to create energy, and energy is extremely important for a for a peaceful society. It's like so, that with anything, though. Exactly. It's, uh, you you know, know, morphine's science. a great painkiller, but it's heroin's <laughs> a bitch. Yeah. So it's uh, it's pretty um, it's pretty difficult to predict exactly how technology will be used. Uh, it's it's up to it's up to the politicians more than the scientists, really. I was going to say it's not your responsibility. You do the you do the legwork. You 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 put your stamp on it. What they do with it is what they decide to do with it. Yeah, and you just hope that. Uh, you hope that you know society keeps progressing in a in a way that things are more peaceful. And, I would and, imagine that this project has become your baby for the most part because of all you've done with it. Does it scare you that those things could be taken in the different dark directions than you what you intended to? 
because, I think every scientist is, is, is afraid of that to some degree. Yeah. I mean, are you afraid for what could be done with this stuff? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think at some point you're afraid, but you're also hopeful that, that good things will come of it. And, yeah. uh, and then, I mean, you can be, uh, you know, utilitarian about it and you say, well, I hope the balance of good is better than the, you know, the harm that's done. But, um, at the end of the day, I think, I, I think the science that I create is not on its own, uh, noble in any sense, specifically because it can be used for good or for bad. Um, and for that reason, it's important that I do other things in my life in order to, uh, you know, in order to, to, to help society or to help cultures, to help people and so forth. Because just the well, technology I mean, on its own is not necessarily going to, to result in a net benefit. Well, look at the gentleman who, who uh, essentially created Agent Orange. It's not what the, that's not what he started out doing. Mm -hmm. The government's the one who warped it. It yeah, wasn't dynamite, meant to be yeah. a default. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> dynamite. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, let me so. take this into a slightly different direction then. Since we've discovered all the, I mean, the proteins or anything leading up to this point and what you can do with it, have you or do you foresee a possibility for stem cells to fit into this? Um, well, I mean, you can always merge technologies. I don't. I mean, nothing super obvious comes to mind at the moment. Okay. But. Um, but stem cell is just definitely really important technology. Well, one, one thing you could definitely do is, well, not definitely, but one thing you could, you could imagine you could do is you could take a, uh, a stem cell and then you could add a protein to it that would interact with the virus or you can just add the, the channel which reacts to light directly to the, to the stem cell population, derive those into neurons, and then you have these specific neurons that have the, the protein in them. And then you can inject that into somebody's brain and that way, uh, you know, you can restrict the effects that you have to the, to the neurons that you've instilled in there. And you could maybe just use that just as a way to help them integrate into the network properly by stimulating them at certain times and so forth. Um, so there's definitely, there's always a potential to merge technologies. The stem cells and optogenetics are both types of biology, so certainly I overlap there. Are you patenting any of this stuff? I mean, just, well, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, how far into this procedure are you? Because it be sounds very, like you've be got very clear. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not the one developing these tools. I'm just using them for for specific uh, research questions. Yeah. Right. So I I, I mean I, the, I think most of this stuff is patented, but um, it's more or less freely available to academics. I think when pharmaceutical companies want to use optogenetics, they pay through the nose, and for that reason, they try to partner with academics. And so that the academics can essentially get this stuff for next to nothing. And then the pharmaceutical industries can get the data through the universities. Yeah. So where would you like to see this go with what you're doing right now? I'd, I would really like to make a difference in um, the lives of people that, that suffer from mental illness. Um, I, to me, that's, that's one of the saddest things that, that can happen to somebody. Often, as, as Lobo alluded to earlier, these can be one of the most beneficial points, you know, of your life to go through something difficult. Um, but often mental illnesses are, you know, it's, it's hard to see how they're benefiting somebody, you know, schizophrenia or, you know, real exactly. severe chronic depression, um, autism. You know, I mean, there's many demonstrations where mental illness probably it would be nice if we had some way to, to, to get people to shake it off. Yeah. Cause right now all we have is drug treatment for it. We don't have anything above and beyond that. And a lot of times the, cure can sometimes be just as bad as as the problem itself it's that's the most common but there are there are i mean cognitive brain theory therapy has a lot of traction uh people with depression and and um electroconvulsive therapy although it's 
seemed quite barbaric is also being used, particularly at the uh, hospital where I'm working. Not really. I don't think well, it, I've it's being really used. seen that as barbaric. Oh, you haven't seen it as barbaric? Well, no, I've never what, seen it as barbaric at all. What is, what is, what is that movie with uh, um, Jack Nicholson, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Or yeah. Whatever? Oh, that's. that's <laughs> they've, they've come a long way from that. I've never yeah, seen that's that lobotomizing. Well, See, I'm, I'm an electrician lobotomized, trade, he gets so. the ECT, I think, right? Yeah, he gets electroshock therapy. Yeah, he does. Eventually, he ends up getting fried, but. Your brain just stops. I you see. I, as an electrician, I've never really been afraid of electricity per se. And I know that when I've been whacked really hard, usually over 500 volts, I usually feel pretty good afterwards. <laughs> I've been electrocuted a few times. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Well, I'm always one of those guys that doesn't bother like breaking the, you know, turning the the, the never. circuit off. I it's never like... shut it down. I always work on it live. You're an idiot. That's why. Why? <laughs> It's not going to kill you. <laughs> well, I always worked on armed atomic bombs. It's not a big deal. Big difference. As long as you have some sort of, I mean, let's not, let's not uh, send people away here with a wrong message. As long as you have some sort of insulation, you should be fine. True. But, uh, well, but I if, mean, you, if you're holding on to like the kitchen tap when you're doing it, you could, you could, you could, you could well, get hurt. Potentially you could get fried. You could potentially get fried. Yeah. He would hold Well, you also got to realize where you are, you're working with a lot higher voltage than we do here in the States. Yeah, yeah. You have uh, twenty twenty. You have two twenty coming out of yours at all times, correct? And it's a good buzz. Yeah, yeah two twenty hertz, man. <laughs> good buzz. Two twenty hertz. You got two twenty, probably good twenty forty amps running through that. Yeah, you're. It's a, a big difference over here. And he was like, he put, he was making some tea, and he put the kettle on. He was like, wow, man, that's an amazing kettle. I'm like, no, 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 no. You, yeah, right. You're <laughs> working with juice, a whole different the juice amp. coming out of the wall, it's man. It's cooking. Absolutely. <laughs> I tried to explain it to a friend of mine. You use a convection uh, convection cooktop that runs on 220. It's going to heat up a lot faster than something that's coming off a of 110. I'm not listening to you. You only believe in science. That's probably why we never win. We never win because you are fat. Yes, science. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. Hello, my name is Hero Job Scheib, and I am the host of Musings of a Scheib podcast, a Dogecoin peer-to-peer sharing economy show. My show is about the digital monies known as Dogecoin, but I also cover the digital currency you may have heard of, Bitcoin, and the technologies that enable digital monies to exist, but also are reshaping the very fabric of the internet itself. This show will help you enable to understand these this great technology and enable you as an individual to reshape your life. You can find my show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, MixCloud, and you can find me on the Twitters as Musings of a Shipe. If you like motorcycles and you like comedy, perhaps you should try the Wheel Nerds podcast. Stop that. What, what are you doing? I'm doing my announcer voice. It's proven super effective. It's stupid. Nope. We're the Wheel Nerds. Shut up. We're the Wheel Nerds. We're a weekly-ish comedy motorcycle podcast. 
where we talk about everything two wheels and a bunch of stuff that isn't. Give us a listen at wheelnerds.com, iTunes, or Stitcher. Or wherever fine podcasts are sold. Ha ha ha! I gotta stop doing this now, my throat hurts. Hey, congratulations. You're already listening to one of the best podcasts on the internet, Project Archivist, with Rojan and Lobo, a couple of guys I've known for a long time. They put on a great show, and so do I. It's called Sword and Scale, and it deals with true crime, horrible things that have happened in this world that we live in, with real people that live amongst us. In fact, what we say on the show is that the worst monsters are real. And I think if you listen to some of our stories, you too will agree. So head on over to swordandscale.com after the episode and give us a listen. And now, back to the show. This is amazing because there's so many avenues you could go with this. Like right now, up until this point, my understanding of this kind of stuff is like they have that Jedi mind control toy where you put the little thing on your head and you mentally control the ball when it goes up and down and stuff like that. I mean, if you can do this kind of stuff and you can control inside the brain with, you know, you you could use neural pathways to control stuff. Eventually, you're talking in a sense that you could almost plug yourself into a computer or you, you know, it's it's like Wi-Fi for the most part. I mean, you could, there's so many things you could do with this kind of stuff. So my brain's going in 90 million different directions right now, seeing the implications of what this, of what possibilities this has down the road. But you've only got one or two mice that can do this right now, correct? Uh, well, the in terms of the optogenetics, we can put this into as many animals as we have, you know, the space and the resources to, 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 to do. But... Um, You've only got the one mouse that's like, hey, I need to go over there and explore that right now, though, right? For the most so part. So far, I've only made one mouse that's got heightened curiosity. That's correct. Can yeah. you make another one, though? Could I you think make... so. I yeah, think I mean... so. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one with Abby Normal's brain. Um... Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, no, I really think so. And, uh, and hopefully, um, hopefully we'll have some nice data on that in the next few months. But... Um... But now, yeah. what's, now, just just out of curiosity, um, yeah. pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> this this animal has heightened awareness of its of its area as far as exploration goes. Without the fear sense, if the fear sense is put in, that tends to shut down. Well, he said it did still have the fear sense though. Well, no, if the fears if if fear is brought into the equation, it loses its its curiosity drops off. Correct. Yeah, I mean it's suppressed like it would be in a normal animal. Okay, so now. What's what's the difference between this animal and something that shows the hallmarks of toxoplasmosis, whereas it's not afraid of anything? Explain that for people who don't understand what toxoplasmy gummy gummy is or whatever. It's a parasite that's found in it's it's passed on to rodents and then mice generally. Well, any rodent actually. Cats Uh, too, I think. Cats cats are usually the carrier, but mice. Oh yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. Mice show actually they've been they found toxoplasmosis in some dolphins too, which is not a good sign. Um, but anyway, human beings have it too. Uh, yeah, I think I think like most of us have it. Yes, something. we do. It's it's kind of frightening actually. This is the disease where if you're pregnant, they say don't have a cat in the house because you can catch it from kitty well, it's litter. It's not boxes. a disease. It's not a it's, disease. It's a parasite. I'm sorry. But the 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 let's just say mouse. Let's use a mouse as an example because that's what we're using as an analog. Uh, these animals, they have their their fear response to the to their natural predator is gone. It That's will, right. Yeah, they'll actually go towards the because the parasite so the mouse wants will to want to attack the cat. 
Well, the, the, the whole idea behind the parasite is that it needs to go through the intestinal tract of the cat in order to continue its life cycle. Yes. So the mouse will move towards the cat. The cat will then eat it, supposedly eat it, as, as normal cats do. And then the parasite can continue its, its path. But the animals show virtually no fear. Now, is there a way to turn that fear response off in the mouse so that the curiosity that it has can be far-reaching? Uh, there, I mean, there are definitely a variety of mutant animals, mutant mice that have been made that essentially don't show fear. Okay. Um, uh, they have not been studied specifically in the context of how they explore their environments or how efficiently they, they learn in those environments. Um, basically because not a lot of people have specifically been interested in this question. Um, so, so it's, I guess it's up to me to, to kind of start the ball rolling on all this stuff. But, um, yeah, we but expect to be mentioned in your scientific papers, by the <laughs> way. These <laughs> two chuckleheads over in the U.S. <laughs> no, no, Canada's not claiming all the credit for this. So. <laughs> that's a uh, that's an interesting. No, but it's it's, it's a really it's a really um, interesting avenue of research to go down to see whether or not you know the, the essentially the suppression of the fear response would then de-repress the exploration drive. And and therefore have an effect on how efficiently memories are, are learned. It's entirely possible. My guess is that, that that would happen sometimes, and it wouldn't happen other times, depending on the specific reason why the fear had been uh, suppressed. Because there's a there's a theory kicking around. It's been kicking around for the last few years that the people that are like honest to goodness true daredevils that have to keep going for higher and higher adrenaline rushes may mm -hmm. actually have toxoplasmosis that takes away their fear response. And causes them to search out more and more ways to be able to reach that high. Yeah, I've heard I've heard of that before. My dad was talking about that just uh, like over the Christmas break. No kidding. Hanging out with yeah, yeah. And, I, and I was like, yeah, I never heard of that, but maybe. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I I think I but I think they. I don't know. Can how do they test if somebody has toxoplasmosis? Can you do that without? Like without having to ha have somebody die first, and then getting I don't know. I don't know. I I thought there was a way to test for it through blood. Yeah, or through so. uh, not blood through um, like just uh, yeah, spinal fluid. spinal fluid. Yeah. yeah, spinal fluid because it shows. I guess there's a tracer. Yeah, I guess I guess yeah, the spinal fluid that'd be that'd be likely, but you don't exactly want to go in for a spinal tap just for the heck of it. I mean. No, well, I don't know if you're a daredevil, you might just do it for the hell of it. <laughs> <laughs> so. It sounds yeah. like you need more mice. <laughs> you need to breed um, more mice with mice with more funky genetic uh, anomalies and things like that in them to to be able to run a variety of all these tests. Um, sounds like he's going to be doing that anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the big reasons why why I went into this area is because uh, it was in many ways a new avenue of research. People had people had you know looked at exploration, but they never really had had found an animal that showed such a different response compared to control animals, depending on whether or not the environment was fearful or not. Mm -hmm. However, I think that there are many animals out there that have already been created that would show such a difference. Nobody had just nobody just looked at it yet, um, huh. and so there's just there's just so much potential. There's so many there's so much low hanging fruit in a sense. There's so many different experiments that we can do right away that are genuinely interesting, not that hard to pull off. Um, and uh, it could be extremely insightful and helpful. So, so for me, I mean, this is this is awesome. I and mean, this is like the best time of my my life, like science-wise. Like I'm having a, a who, like it's it's so amazing. 
it's a lot of work. It's, well, you know, hell, it's you've got your own lab but... and you're in Switzerland. I could see, you know, how, how could it not be? And uh, and I have some great students working with me, and it's 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 really it's really amazing. Like it's uh, I tell you, it's it's definitely one of the best you know careers I think you can ever have if you're like, you know, if you're a really curious individual, you know, if you're really motivated to do this stuff. How um, long have you been doing this for over in Switzerland? I've been in Switzerland for four years now. And you is this with the the same mouse or uh, no that mouse work I did in Toronto so then I when I came to Switzerland uh, I still had these research like uh, questions in my mind but I really wanted to start looking at circuits and that's when I started working with the like the, the optogenetics and and fMRI to create this system where I can look at neural circuits in the whole brain of a living mouse um, and then once I learned all those techniques, and um, you know, writing up all that stuff, and that should be published soon. Then, uh, then I wrote this grant, and I said, okay, you know, I've got this really interesting data from Toronto. I've got these new techniques that I've mastered now. You know, give me some money, and then we're going to look at the circuits that underlie the stuff and see like what's going on in mental illness. And I partnered with this guy uh, here at the Hospital for Psychiatry, who's, who's, who's really brilliant in animal behavior, and uh, he is a great model of, of depression. And I said, yeah, I'm going to put these three things together and I'm going to, I'm going to make some progress. And, and, and they bought it. So uh, <laughs> so that's what I'm doing now. That's, Have you made a lot of progress within that field so far? Or are you still... Uh... Well, the, the really important thing that we've done so far is we've taken this model of depression in mice and we've examined how it explores. Um, and we, we noticed that it has a huge deficit in exploration. It was actually much more profound than I thought it was going to be. And... Um, and yet, in fearful environments, they still more or less explore like like the, the control animals do. So it's it's it's. So I think we can really go in and, and try to figure out what's going on in this circuit. Why why do they? There's two real hypotheses I have as to why it's happening. Either they have kind of like a heightened fear response, and I think that may be mediated by serotonergic innervations of the hippocampus, or they could have a depressed reward response, which in many ways is kind of more fitting with how we understand depression. And so they just you know, they have a lack of motivation to go out and do these things. But then when they get scared, they actually respond to it. So this is, uh, this, that's the second hypothesis. And we're going to test these things at the, the level of neurocircuits by going in and specifically stimulating, you know, the serotonergic innervations and the, the dopaminergic innervations. How fast has uh, this research been going for you? Are, you? are you getting results faster than you expected, slower than expected? You know, um, what have you? Are, are you? are you moving it along at a quicker clip than you thought you'd be? No, it's 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 going it's going about the speed that I want it to be, but there's more paperwork involved than I had hoped. <laughs> That's what interns are for. <laughs> there, are, there are trees waiting for you. Yeah, we should probably get to your Mars One stuff. So what happens not, yeah. if they Something say tells me that's going to be a lot more boring than what we just talked about. <laughs> Well, it's going to kind of suck because if they say, all right, you're going to Mars, all of this stuff kind of has to get put on the back burner, doesn't it? Um, well, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if Mars One wants to take me on, um, then, yeah, I, I, I don't think I'll be able to continue running a research lab. I'll have to move to the United States. I'll have to start training, um, and, uh, and I'll have to, in many ways, say goodbye to all this. That's going to suck. No offense. <laughs> yeah, but think about the possibilities for application of what you already know on your travels. Uh, yeah, I mean, understanding a little bit about the brain, I think, in general, helps with, 
the like your strategy with life and how you interact with people and that's that's really important and also how you deal with circumstances um at least it seems i think it helps it helps me anyway but uh, i don't know if i could do it man i mean you're you you're talking about making huge scientific contributions here and you've already seen results with possible potential yeah but row like imagine imagine the science i can do on mars exactly well, exactly. how much are you going to be? I mean, you're going to be living in. He's not moving out to a hovel. It kind of is. I mean, it's not like he's moving to a, a research facility with a condominium on Mars, though. I asked I asked Arno about this. Arno's one of the co-founders of Mars One. I yeah. said, uh, I said, what about the science experiments? And he said, because um, you can do whatever you want as long as you get the money to bring the stuff there. Oh, man, that's awesome. So it's like, uh, which is, I think it's kind of. It's kind of cool. I mean, and I think they're serious when they say that. They're like, yeah, sure. Like, you, you can do whatever science you want there, but you got to like come up with the money because we're only funding like just we'll being there and there. staying alive. Yeah, we're getting yeah. the basics. Um, but I think if, if, if it really looks like like things are going to pan out and go to Mars, it's probably not too difficult to come up with a little bit of money to buy a few microscopes and stuff. I was going to say, you right. got, if you're going to Mars, there's going to be people banging on your door to do stuff out there. Yeah. That's so. awesome. So certainly there's, there's awesome potential to do experiments on Mars. And I wasn't always a neuroscientist. I started in, in chemistry. I was like uh, organic chemistry and like uh, theoretical chemistry. It was, and that was like my real – I actually did it because it was, it was like the one subject in school that I could kind of do without having to study much. And so, <laughs> <laughs> my kind of guy. <laughs> Go with what you're good at. I don't want to work real hard. <laughs> it was it was it was really a practical decision. I was like, you know, I think this stuff's really cool. It's really interesting. But at the end of the day, it's like, I would, you know, like I don't really want. To, I didn't really want to focus on getting you know good grades. I really wanted to focus on learning stuff. And so chemistry just turned out that this was I could actually like sort of learn how I wanted to, and I would, and I would still get good grades. Whereas biology, I always got into fights with my professors. And because uh, I would disagree with them, and then of course they'd give me bad grades. And in, in physics, I would always get some of the highest grades because at the end of the day, it's just you know moving numbers around. And once you get it, you get it, and you and you get it. So there's nothing that can go wrong on the exam. But it took me so long to like wrap my head around all these, all the you know all the different calculus that was involved, and all these like math formulas and stuff. That the investment of time, I was like, oh man, it just takes so long to do this. So I just like went on chemistry because it was relatively easy and. I've always wanted to ask this of a scientist. Since you said you got into an argument with your biology teachers and things like that, when you publish these papers, are you going to mail them to them with like a box of chocolates and a drawing of a middle <laughs> finger or something like that? You know, I, I, I... <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know what I thought about doing? I thought about like taking the, the first letter of every paragraph and like using that to spell a message. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Oh, man. You know, that professor would be great. Professor so-and-so, what do you think about this or something like that? <laughs> that would be awesome. And I don't see anything wrong with that at all. <laughs> I think they'd get a kick out of it. Some of them would anyway. I mean, now yeah. they're my colleagues, right? So. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Awesome. Remember when you bullied me? Guess what I'm doing now? <laughs> and I'm going to Mars. So screw you. <laughs> yeah. I'm not very vengeful that way. I, I think I'd rather just have a chuckle. It's about not it. vengeful. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. But hey, you've earned it, you know? So the whole going to Mars thing, you're making huge, big scientific contributions here. And if you're just going to up and get picked up and go off to Mars and you want to take all this stuff with you, 
how likely do you see this actually happening? Because I've talked to people that have been like, yeah, we're probably not going to – that's probably not going to happen. There's too much for them to work out for us to get there. Um, I was just – did an interview with somebody a few weeks ago and they were like, no, we're probably going to end up sending probes and stuff out to space. So, I mean, do you really foresee you guys actually getting shot up into space and going off to Mars on a spaceship? Um, well, Rojan, we are definitely going to Mars. Mm-hmm. I mean, humans are going to Mars. That's clear. Yes. Um, I'm not arguing there. I fully believe that we are. I, th- I There's not a doubt in my mind that we're going to get there just because we, we want to go and we need to go. The argument as a scientific community is, why don't we just send probes? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? So... Um, but the, I mean, we're not just interested in the scientific information. That's why. Right? Mm, I mean, you know, like a, a, a probe isn't going to continue, you know, the, the beauty of earthly life when uh, when Earth gets struck by a big rock or something, right? Yes. So, uh, I mean, we, they, we, we clearly have a finite amount of time on, on planet Earth. Uh, not, how close not, are they not to Not just get... humans, not just humans, but, I mean, all of life on Earth, right? And, and I think that the life that's on Earth even though it's often very destructive and you can say cynical things about it, I think it's a beautiful thing. And as far as we know, it's, it's unique, at least to this corner of the, the universe. And I think, I think we owe it to the universe to preserve it because it created us. That's, that's sort of my rationale. And we have the technology to do that. Do we, though? I mean, are we actually able to make a ship to get off this planet and go? That's the big argument that I've heard is that for all this talk and stuff that it's – you know, it's a pipe dream that, they, you know, that they actually, they're not going to be able to get a ship together in time because there's too many scientific hurdles. Do you- well, I, I mean, Mars One uh, is, you know, Mars One is just one company. But, I mean, look at look at Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk has, has huge potentials to, to do this mm-hmm. essentially as a single person. I mean, this he's probably one of the most or maybe the most influential person to, to be alive right now. And, and, and the next 30 years will we'll tell whether or not that's going to be, you know, really the way that people see it a thousand years from now. Um, but, but certainly NASA, they had, they had a roadmap to go to Mars back in the seventies and eighties. And it was, it was nixed by Nixon. Right. Um, and they would, they would have gone, they would have made it there. I mean, they were more prepared to go to Mars in 1970 by 1980 than they were to go to the moon in, in 1960 by 1970. So, um, so I, I, I don't think technology is a hurdle whatsoever for this type of stuff. I mean, essentially, I mean, you know what a rocket is, right? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> to, to the front of a rocket, they blast off. You can yeah. take them anywhere to do that. But we still, it's such a long trip. You've got to deal with the radiation aspects of it. Uh, you're gonna, How long of a trip is it to get there? What, two years, I think it is? Is it a two-year no, trip? No, six to eight months, depending exactly on like the positions of Mars and Earth at the time of, of takeoff. And then you've got the low gravity aspects of what it's going to do to your body. Um, it's yeah, a lot of stuff. Well, th- yeah, there's there's definitely some difficulty there, but uh, but it's all like it, like if you just if you just look at it objectively, face value, there's there's nothing that that's that, that's that's a huge technical hurdle that we that we can't do. The most difficult thing, one of the most difficult things, is getting enough stuff there to to fly back safely. The yeah. infrastructure required to launch a rocket. You know, does not exist on Mars. Establishing all that stuff is is relatively difficult. Yeah, because yeah. for you, it's a one way trip. Yeah, and and, and 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 I'm perfectly fine with that. In fact, I think that's that's preferable in many many. <laughs> Screw this many place! I'm out. I ain't coming back. <laughs> you know, there's 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 a small element of that, but that <laughs> <laughs> yes, <small>. honesty, <laughs> I love it. But uh, but really, it's it's more about you know starting something new uh, somewhere else. 
uh, as opposed to leaving somewhere old. So, um, that's so great. But but no, definitely. I I, I really like. Okay, first off, I'm not a space engineer or anything. Mm-hmm. But if you just if you just look at what was accomplished between 1950 and like 1980, for example, in terms of the space industry, we went from essentially nothing to to people going to the moon on a regular basis. Um, uh, yeah, it became yeah. blasé after a while. Exactly, and I mean, we had we, we had we had space station. I mean, think about the space shuttle. Think about what the space shuttle was. I mean, this was like this was a huge, huge vehicle. I understand that there were some you know tragic instances involved, but this thing was f- coming down from outer space and landing on a runway. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is like like that. That is that is. We don't have anything like that now. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't even exist now. And and you think about it, just how absolutely incredible that is. And uh, certainly, we will, we have the technology and the means and the know-how and, and 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 the financial resources to get to Mars and to establish civilization there. That's there's no doubt in my mind. You know, I've always wondered about that because, like, even when they retired the space shuttle, the technology and it was pretty old and antiquated. I've I can only imagine now if they were designed a spacecraft from the ground up, would you get your touch screens, your processing power, the computers that you have now? There's so much more stuff that we can do that. I, I can't believe that we can't make a better mousetrap, for pardon the pun, to be able to get us there. I mean, they, they showed the pictures of what the inside of that space capsule looks like. It was all streamlined, nice-looking, little touchscreens in front of you. It wasn't the clunky dials and knobs and switches everywhere. And, mm-hmm. you know, it looked pretty cool. It was a difference between looking at, like, a Pento and a Maserati. You know, <laughs> it was, that's the, the technology that you guys can take there is pretty incredible. But it's still such a huge endeavor because you have to drop the environments that you're going to live on there. There's a lot of stuff that involves of going with it. And if you get picked, what's your time scale for actually going? Well, I think Mars One, I, I don't think Mars One can meet its time schedule because there's not enough redundancy built into the original plan. Mm-hmm. Like the only way they could make it is if everything works perfectly. And we know that, I mean, that's highly unlikely to happen. Yeah. Um, even even SpaceX has issues with their rockets, so we we can expect that out of the whatever eight or twelve launches or whatever that they have to have working before they even start sending humans, that that one or two of those is not going to work, and every one that doesn't work is a setback by yeah. by, by two years. Um, but I do think Mars One could could pull it off. I mean, it's not it's not unforeseeable. Um, it, it's really going to depend on 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 getting money. Um, it's really going to depend on getting, um, building traction within, you know, the, the scientific community as well to sort of build cred and get people behind them, get partnerships. They need, they need financers. And, um, but if, but, but for the most part, I mean, they're not doing any of the science, right? I also spoke to the guy from Lockheed Martin that's building the lander that they're sending in 2018. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this, you speak to this guy and he's, He's 100% certain this is going to work. It's fine. It's like it's just like write me a check and we'll get that thing to Mars for you. Mars One doesn't do any of that. Lockheed mm-hmm. Martin does it. They've been doing it for NASA for 30 years. So there's 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 no you know there's very little difference between Mars One hiring um, Lockheed Martin and NASA hiring Lockheed Martin. The main difference is that when Mars One hires them, they get them to repeat what they've already done for NASA, whereas NASA you know gets them to do something entirely new because they have a new question to ask. Yeah, I mean, virtually all the technology exists. Not all the technology necessary has been tested in space, and almost none of it has been tested on Mars. 
<laughs> that's a whole nother that's a whole nother you know, reason for delays. <laughs> they don't really want to go there because it's a pretty scary concept but yeah <laughs> i mean for example they i mean they have uh the plan in order to get to get oxygen and to get water comes from digging up the soil i was like i don't know if you guys have ever taken a shovel out in the winter time and tried to dig a hole mm-hmm. but I mean, it all the time. i just did it on monday with the dog. <laughs> not easy to get through frozen uh, frozen soil when it's at you know minus 10 or minus 20. Imagine if it's like minus 50 or, or minus 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's you know, like I'm not too certain exactly what tools they're sending up there to dig through this kind of stuff and how efficiently they're really going to be able to to dig up the soil, let alone uh, bake it and then extract the water and filter it out and make sure it's clean and all that stuff. There's a lot of difficult things that have to, have to go on, but it's totally doable. And, it, and, and for such an incredible endeavor, if it's doable, if it's at all possible, you just go for it full tilt. You just do everything you possibly can to get there because uh, you probably will get there eventually. So that's kind of how I look at it. Well, what was the original date to, to go there? What's if, if you get picked, what were they saying, two years from now, three years from now? Well, their original date was to launch humans in 2022. Mm-hmm. And they've already delayed that by two years. So now they want to launch in 2024. People will land in 2025 sometime. So even if you get picked, like say next week, yes, you're going. You're one of the people that's going to be going on this. Well, even if you get picked for the finalists, there's still another round of people to go through, correct? Or I think so. I don't think they're going to finalize like the first round of people until the end of this year. But but on top of that, even the first like people that they pick to really start training and they hire full time, yeah, even those people might not actually go to Mars. There's no guarantee. It's like when you get hired with like. NASA, you get hired at the Canadian Space Agency or like JAX or something in Japan. Yeah, you you essentially have a guarantee that you will fly in space. You may have a very short mission, but they you they will get you up there somehow. It may take twenty years, but they'll get you up there. Mars One gives you no such guarantees whatsoever. They're 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 strictly committed to the mission itself. Uh, so you could you could get hired onto Mars One. You could train with them for twelve years. Um, you could be part of a stellar team, and you could never go. So really, you still got a good amount of time, even if you do get picked. It's not like you're packing your bags and leaving tomorrow. Well, you're not leaving Earth, but I would be leaving my career, and, and I would be leaving Switzerland. Man. Yeah. Now, while you're training, are you still going to be able to continue your scientific research in a different capacity, or that's uh, it? Maybe, but not really. Ooh, I, oh man! Like, I, won't, I won't be able to do like, like the science I'm doing now. I can't run a laboratory. Man, I don't training. want you to go because you're doing cool <laughs> shit. <laughs> I hate to say that, but but you'll still be you'll still you're essentially going to be like one of the scientific minds for if he for gets this. picked. If he gets picked, it ends up going on the final one. If he so, says, they're not you're not going to be like, all right, I'm a scientist. I'm going to train for Mars One, and I'm going to be a plumber. I mean, you're going to be you're one of the well, scientific minds. They they want to their strategy currently is to train all the astronauts more or less identically. Oh wow! Uh, so any specialities that you have would be things that you brought to the program at the time of being accepted, as okay. opposed to them training you specifically in that. Um, and the reason why they they do that is so that you know if something happens to one person, you don't lose essential skills. Sure. Um, and they can also s- sort of pull it off because they have such a long period of time to train everybody. Right. Um, so, but, but, but we'll, you know, we'll see what, it's going to be extremely interesting to endeavor. I mean, I would, I spent two weeks at this Mars simulation site in Utah last year and it was like so much fun, you know, like it was just, it was, it was like space camp, you know what I mean? It was like Mars camp. 
you know, we're out great. there living in this tuna can and we go outside, you got to put on this fake space suit and like you wander around. It's like, you know, you can hear yourself breathe. It's like this backpack on. And, uh, and, uh, and the people that were with were just like a total riot. Like the couple of people there from Johnson space center, really interesting people. And, um, and, and it was awesome. It was great. What I want to say is that the actual training procedure that Mars one will be doing, I think it would be really, really, really fun. I talked to uh, to Nobert Kraft about this quite a bit in Amsterdam uh, in May last year, and he was describing, you know, uh, once they settled on the final cruise, like the kind of stuff they're going to put them through, and they you go through all these like these crazy tests and and so forth and whatever they spin you around on that thing and they try to make you puke and stuff, but then also like they'll they'll put you in this habitat, and you'll live there for like you know three months in a confined space with these people and they'll. They'll make you eat insects and then they'll lock you in a closet with them and you have to like, you know, poo in a bag and stuff and, 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 and like, you know, like live in these really like harsh, crazy environments. Um, but I, like, I think that would be kind of fun, you know, like in many ways and like the kind of stuff that you would learn and you experience. And this is stuff that, that I can never do now because, you know, because I'm so involved in, in, in science and so forth. Um, and would I rather, you know, do these test experiments or run my lab well i'd wait wait rather run my lab i mean that's that's clear yeah um but but they're they will be fun on their own and that's 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 that that'd be i mean that's sort of interesting right like the, the training should be really interesting and fun just just independent of even going to mars have you hung out with any of the other mars one candidates i mean we asked the same thing when melissa was on here and she said that she knew a bunch of the other people that were out there and stuff like that. And that you know she had hung out with some of them. Have you hung out with any other candidates for the program so far? Yeah, I, I, I met um, I've, I've met a few of them. Uh, one in one in Amsterdam last year, and there was also a like a sort of Mars One event here in Switzerland. And I met a bunch of them there. And then I hooked up with this guy. We went skiing together a couple of days later because he was touring around uh, Europe at the time. I mean, they're, they're cool people, you know, like, um, in general. And the great thing is I've wanted to go to Mars for a long time, like for over 12 years or something, um, way back before anybody in the media was talking about it and, you know, way before Mars One was, was, was a thing. I mean, I think Bass and, and Arno were actually thinking about also going to Mars, you know, more than a decade ago, but they hadn't created Mars One at this point. And uh, certainly nobody was talking about it, and I hadn't met anybody um, that shared this vision with me. But then since Mars One has popped up, there's been, you know, people, you know, I've just been put in contact with a lot of different people. And it's pretty, uh, it's, 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 it's pretty interesting to meet all these different people. And, and a lot of them have very similar motivations. I think, I think a lot of people are motivated to go because they think it'll just be a crazy, awesome adventure. Mm -hmm. And I see that element in there. Um, some people are motivated to go because they want to be they want to be famous because they want to make it, you know, they want to do something that's big and epic or whatever. And, 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 and I think that's cool too, but, uh, I really want to go because of what I think we can get done once we get there. Um, like, uh, the adventure is great, but I mean, there's so many adventures you can do here on earth. Um, I mean, I don't have it's to do not the Mars. It's not yeah, Mars. Come on, Lobo, I don't have to like I don't I don't have to do the most incredible adventure that of the like of the whole world. I mean, like, but you will be. Yeah, but still, that's, you're, you're, <laughs> yeah, I, you're I will be to Mars. You can climb a mountain. You can go up the Matterhorn, but it's still not Mars. You know, uh, I I agree, but I don't think that the, I don't think that the rush of going to Mars and the adventure of it for me that's not worth all the risks involved in giving up my career as a scientist and and the relationships I have with people on Earth. 
that to me no i mean to, to me the motivation to go is what we can do when we get there yeah exactly that's i'm not talking about hey, i'm gonna do this I'm gonna, i can say i went to mars no think of what you you are you already do you think about what can be done there yeah you know? so that's uh that, that's that's amazing that's, I, that, that, that's uh, yeah that's really the, the key thing for me and uh and it's always been that way since i first thought about it you know like 12 years ago wow. i mean literally the experiments that you'd be doing on mars if you if you were in fact going to be someone's going to throw money at you that's there's no question do experiments there they, they they'll be the first of their kind literally we could discover a separate origin of life absolutely god if you discovered some form of life there even bacterial oh man it's you guys know Lawrence Krauss i am not familiar with the that name's no. familiar i'm not familiar with the person yeah he's uh you guys know Richard Dawkins Yes. So he's one of the guys that goes around with Richard Dawkins, maybe the main guy that goes around with Richard Dawkins and does like these big public lectures. Lawrence Krauss is a uh, physicist, and he came up with the, the idea um, based on quantum mechanics that the universe can start from nothing. Um, I think that was his idea anyway. And uh, he certainly you know, developed a lot of the math to, to support the idea. And... And this is an extremely powerful thing, and of course it flies in the face of theology, which is part of the reason why he partners up with Richard Dawkins a lot. Um, he's not nearly as critical as, as, as Richard is, but he's still, you know, obviously very... <laughs> I.e. he's not an asshole. He's not an asshole. That's interesting. So I, I, I'll, I'm going to be at a science Not your words, mine, but go with, ahead. <laughs> uh, with Richard. and Actually, I was, I was with Richard here in um, Switzerland not too long ago as well in the summertime. Anyway, I don't... I like I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I like don't, him. You, don't you also self-subscribe as an asshole? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so maybe yes. you, well, point taken. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> but I really don't think he is an asshole. I've heard, you know, I mean, well, anyway, whatever. Now we're talking about people, which is less interesting yeah, than concepts. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, know, I know you're going. Go ahead. <laughs> so, so Lawrence Krauss, um, him and I were at this festival last year. There's a really awesome science documentary festival in the Czech Republic, by the way. It's in this beautiful little town called Olomud. And it's the oldest science documentary film festival in the world. This year's their 50th anniversary. Anyway, so Lawrence and I were there, and, and I was interested to ask him this question. He'd just given this talk for all these people. And I said, what do you think will happen in terms of like people who believe in theology and so forth? if we discover like a separate origin of life or even if we just discover life on, on another planet, for example, Mars. And he said that he, he would consider this to be the most significant discovery that we had ever made, um, you know, period, bar none. Um, but he thought that it would actually make them dig in their heels even further. Yeah, they'll would... just incorporate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's not a doubt in my mind that once something like that happens, it'll become, well, of course it is, blah, blah, blah. And then theology, that's how theology survives. It adapts to whatever it's presented with. But that's the... how, you know, it's. it'll come down to, well, God created the universe, so God created life, so of course there's going to be life on these other planets. Yeah, you know? exactly, something like that. Yeah. But... So my question was exactly on those lines, but the thing what I what I really liked about his answer is that he he really thought that it would be the most significant discovery we'd ever made. Absolutely. And that 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 goes back to what Lobo was saying about you know think about what you can do on Mars, mm -hmm. and that's that's something that we've not been able to accomplish with rovers, um, but it's something we probably will be able to accomplish with uh, with humans. Lawrence, he, he looks he, he it's terrible. He looks like Ted Levine, the guy <laughs> who played know. Buffalo Bill on Silence of the Lambs. 
<laughs> he does. I'm, he does. I'm sorry. <laughs> when you said it, I'm like, why is this guy familiar? Why is this guy What familiar? a weird direction That's why he's to familiar? go. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. What a weird direction to go. Sorry. No, he's he's great. He's he's a great guy to hang out with. He's a lot of fun. Alright, I think this is going to be a good spot to cut off the first part of the episode, because from this point on, we jump into Lobo's near-death experience, near-death experiences in general, and how they might apply to the process of neurology, and what is going on inside of a person's brain when they die. Uh, We'll probably pick this episode up in a couple of days. i got to edit it down a little bit more, because this one took a while. The next one, I think, comes in at right around, I think it's an hour, it might be an hour. 45 minutes or something like that i'm not sure but we'll have it up in a few days and uh, you guys take care peace
say here i didn't know where holy crap in the world he was from or whatever i had no idea because i've only interacted well, with bash if, if nothing else don't feel bad because you know i'm a new englander and he has a hard time understanding me so yeah i have i'm from detroit and i have a hard time understanding myself but um 